Hello and welcome. I'm Lori Hardy. Thanks for listening in as we continue to talk with leaders in our community. Joining me today is the author of Why Doesn't She Just Leave? A New Perspective on Domestic Violence. And she's also the host of Three Women, Three Ways podcast. Please welcome with me Heather Stark, PhD candidate. As I mentioned, you're the author of a book and host of a podcast. Heather, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Lori. It's great to be here. I'm so glad to be talking about domestic violence. I mean, sad that we have to, but the title of your book alone says people don't understand. I'm not sure what you want to start with, your podcast or your book, so I'll just hand it over to you. Let's do it in chronological order. The book came out some time ago. As a matter of fact, I I keep saying that I'm going to revamp it and edit it so that it's a little bit more current with the research. As you know, Lori, it's not uncommon for women who've experienced domestic violence to write books, and they're of varying quality. They need to do them, and I think they're important, but they're not necessarily the best written books. The approach that I took was to do a research-based book that combined with women's stories, because I think both are very important. So the book, Why Doesn't She Just Leave?, came to fruition when I started looking at research and going, wait a minute, there seems to be some real commonalities on why women don't leave. In the first place, when somebody says that to me, I say, well, they usually do leave. They may not live through it, but they usually do leave. Mm -hmm. They may not leave when you think they ought to leave, but they do leave. So it's a misnomer that women don't leave. They just don't leave on your time schedule. They leave on their own because of all sorts of different issues that they have to face that you don't even know about. So there are commonalities, monetary, social support, legal issues. So those are the three big reasons women do not just go, oh, he did this and so I'm out of here. But there's also subtler issues. It's hard to leave a dream. It's also anybody who knows anything about psychology knows about intermittent reinforcement. You can kind of compare that to the slot machine versus the vending machine. With a vending machine, you know you're always going to get what you put your money in and push the button for that. With intermittent reinforcement, it means that's the gambling. That means maybe I'll get the jackpot this time. Maybe this time I won't. Maybe, oh, and that intermittent reinforcement is a much more powerful force for us as human beings. Domestic violence is intermittent reinforcement. Very rarely is there a a situation where a spouse is horrible, evil, awful all of the time. No, there are moments when it's beautiful. There are moments when he's lovely. There are moments when things are doing well. And so it's that whole intermittent reinforcement. That is something that victims deal with as well. It's very, very hard when you have that whole psychological thing going on. And of course, there are other reasons as well. But in my book, what I did is I looked at the research on those three major issues. And then I solicited stories, real life stories from women who've experienced domestic violence. And that's what I think makes the book readable, but also gives it a a foundation in the research. I'm a big, big fan of the research. Sometimes it's because of threats and threats against their family. It's like when they say, well, why don't you just leave? Then they can't really say, well, he's going to kill me because then the people they're telling are going to make their life worse. And that's the thing I think people don't understand is when somebody tries to interfere or confront the abuser, what it actually does is make it so much worse for the person who's still in the relationship. And in fact, if there is a domestic violence fatality, 
overwhelmingly that fatality occurs when the victim attempts to leave. Right. So it's a risky business to leave. It is. I think it was you that said this to me so many years ago. How many times do you see on the news a woman who is has been killed and they say and she had a restraining order like Mm -hmm. that's going to protect her? Exactly. Or she filed for divorce or she. So they make attempts to protect themselves They make attempts to get out of the situation. But that's when the lethality risk is highest. Mm -hmm. And most people, most support groups, most family members, friends, they don't get that. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, if a man ever hit me or if a man ever did this to me, I'd be out of there. Mm -hmm. But I remember several years ago, I did a, a training with a charitable group that was dealing with some domestic violence. And I basically did this little exercise where I gave, a, I had a basket of stones and I went around the room and I gave each person a stone. And with that stone, I gave them a, a thing to read, a little uh, phrase to read. And it started out with, oh, you're not going to wear that. Oh, I really would rather you not get your hair cut. You know, simple things that every relationship has probably uttered. But then it started getting more intense. And then the comments started getting more intense. And I would stop handing out the stones and saying, okay, now, now should she leave? Mm. Now should she leave? He said, you don't know how to handle money. Now should she leave? Or he said, you know what? I don't like your parents. I don't want them coming over here anymore. Now should she leave? Oh, by the way, she's got a child now. Oh, and now we get to the other end of the room, the end of my basket of rocks, and it ends with a comment, you leave me and you'll never see your children again. (sighs) Now I think we can agree she should leave, except what does that threat mean? Does it mean he'll kill her? Does it mean he'll kill the kids? Does it mean he's going to take the kids away? What does that mean? And that fear and those threats are very, very powerful. So, An outsider who isn't part of all of the machinations of what's going on in that relationship, it looks real simple when you're looking from the outside in. Well, just leave, just leave. And it's very easy to say, well, if he ever, if I ever had a thing that where he did this to me, I would just leave. But I can't tell you how many women who have uttered that have actually found themselves in that situation and realized, wait a minute, it's not that easy, not that easy to do. Right. I like what you said in the very beginning that it's not on our time frame. Talk to somebody who's listening right now that has a friend that's in a bad situation and she wants to go interfere. What's the best thing for her to do? I always tell people that unless you're an expert in advocacy for domestic violence situations, the best thing for you to tell her and help her with is to get support from the experts. Find a domestic violence resource center, find a a shelter, find the domestic violence hotline. Start there. Those people deal with this every day. They know how to handle it. They are not judgmental. They have expertise that you don't have. So I think that's how you can be most helpful to your friend. Help them find the actual true, real, and adequate information that they need for making those plans. I love that. And get informed because the worst thing we can do for someone is think we're helping with our own agenda. And it could really go very south. 
Oh, I can't tell you how many people come to me saying, well, I just told her he he came back home again. And I just told her, you've been through this before. You can't let him keep coming home now, blah, blah, blah. And I'm going, oh, oh, (laughs) don't do that. You know, don't do it. You don't know why she's invited him back home. You're seeing it as her weakness that she's inviting him back home. But for all you know, he may have, there may be threats. There may be financial need. There was a really interesting study that a woman in Virginia did. I actually had her on my my podcast, and she reviewed telephone calls from men who were jailed for domestic violence. Because as you know, when you're in jail, you don't get privacy. And those phone calls can all be monitored and recorded. So she made a study of going through those and looking at the women who took the spouse or the partner back and compared it to those phone calls, the manipulation and primarily money situation. Oh, I, you know, if I'm in jail, I can't help you pay the rent. I don't know what you and the kids are going to do. If you can't pay the rent, you know, your mother won't give you that money. So you have to try and get me out of jail because that's the only way you're going to be able to stay. You and the kids will be able to stay in that apart. Very heavy duty stuff. And the fact is, because there's a lot of financial control in many of these situations, she doesn't probably have the resources. Probably one of her biggest concerns is how am I going to feed these kids? How am I going to pay this rent? How am I, how am I, how am I? Mm -hmm. And here he is now all very contrite and saying, well, just let me back here. I've learned my lesson and things will be back to normal. I think most people would be tempted to give it a shot once or twice. A lot of the criticism we hear about women who take the abuser back is that she shouldn't do that. She should just have a firm line. He's crossed it. Boom, we're done. And I always say, you know, the the research shows it takes seven attempts to quit smoking. How many attempts do you think it should take to give up your life, your dreams, your thoughts of the future, the father of your children, the source of major income in your family? I, I think it would be reasonable to assume it would take at least as many attempts as it would take to quit smoking? What do you think? That's such a great question. And I think there's so much judgment because people are reacting out of fear and they don't know what to do. And they just want them to, number one, do something, number two, be okay. That's just not the way it works. And as a friend, we have to get educated and we have to call those places. We can't get information for the person we're calling for, but we can get information for us in how, as a friend, we can best support them without getting them more hurt or more abused. Yeah. Lori, I'm sure you're familiar with the Washington State's domestic violence leave law called the Protected Leave Law. And for the last 10 years, our state has had a law that any employer... Now, a lot of these laws are written for larger employers. If you employ less than five people, they don't necessarily apply to you. But the domestic violence leave law or the protected leave law does apply to every employer in the state. So if you employ grandma for two hours a month, grandma qualifies under this protected leave law. And what it says is that if somebody is experiencing domestic violence, either personally or with a close friend or a family member, then they can get leave from work and not lose their job. I think it's so significant because first of all, not a lot of employers know about it, but also not a lot of victims know about it. 
And I've personally spoken with victims at the gym, just striking up a conversation, being told by the person on the Nordic track next to me, well, I would like to uh, leave, I, but I'm, I'm worried that my employer would not take me back and I have to deal with this court stuff and I'm worried about the absence and they told me that if I take one more day off, I'm going to lose my job. And I looked at her and I said, you're protected by law. There is a protected leave law that says he has to let you go. Now, if you have paid sick leave, paid vacation time, he or she has to let you use that. If you don't have that, they still have to let you go unpaid. They don't have to pay you if you don't have income coming, but they still have to let you take the time. And it's a very open-ended law. You know, the time varies. There is no set, oh, you have three weeks or whatever. Department of Labor and Industries actually administers that law and monitors it. And actually, there's an organization called BPW East Side, Business and Professional Women East Side. I know they have a website. And in November coming up, they're going to have a member of the Labor and Industries and a member of the Victims Compensation Program do a Zoom meeting. So that would be really helpful if you can find a program like that. And I know most of the, that's the benefit of these Zoom meetings. That they're open to like so many people. Anybody can usually jump in. There are things out there that are helpful. So. That is so good to know. I had no idea. And I know somebody who was working and had to leave her job because he kept showing up. And I just wonder now how that could have played out differently if she had known about that law. Well, and if, as her employer, if, if her employer had known about it, because the fact is that the state goes in, labor and industries goes in and they say, oh, was this law violated? And if they say, yes, it was, then there's a fine, like $500 or $1,000 or whatever. But if the state has found that you as an employer have violated that law, guess what happens next? What? Civil suits. Mm. And that gets people where they hurt. Wow. I'm so glad to know this. Yeah. And it's yeah. been 10 years. And Department of Labor Industries is uh, happy to, to get the information out and do, as a matter of fact, I had them on my podcast as well. Well, we'll put links yeah. to all of those on the show notes. During COVID, what we're hearing is a rise in domestic violence. Well, if I can just correct you a little bit. Yes. I don't think we're seeing a rise in domestic violence. I think we're seeing a rise in fatalities and injuries and what the world sees about oh. domestic violence. Because remember, domestic violence isn't caused by stress. It's not caused by, oh, he lost his job, even though it's often reported that way. The fact is abusers are abusers. And you have very wealthy abusers. You have people that don't have the stress of COVID looming over their heads. What we're seeing is not a cause of domestic violence. What we're seeing is the inability to keep it as well hidden. Wow. So I want to be very clear that domestic violence is domestic violence. It's not caused by COVID. It's not caused by unemployment. It's not caused by anything except abusive people. When you're confined in a house with an abuser, you have more opportunity for that abuse to be exhibited, but it didn't come from COVID. Exactly. You can't necessarily get away. I love that you said that because the truth is, if we were to say, oh, it's from stress, it's easier to excuse and there is no excuse. No, we've been studying, actually studying domestic violence for about 35, 40 years. 
And 35 or 40 years ago, the whole movement of domestic violence and bringing attention to it basically was an offshoot of the, the women's movement. And when one woman was in a situation like that, her sisters would get together and they'd find a place to shelter her. That's how this whole movement got started. Really? And then that started growing bigger and bigger. And then about 25 years ago, people started going, wait a minute, maybe we need to learn more about this because we used to think it was anger or drink. Remember when the police would go to a domestic violence situation and they would take the guy out for a good long walk and then send him back home? Clearly, he just was blowing his top. He just had stress, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, that 25 years worth of research has, has led us to a lot of new information. And the notion that domestic violence is caused by alcohol or substance abuse or uh, economic issues, or we, we've learned a lot. We're beyond that now. It could be exacerbated by those things. It could be more visible because of those things. But abusers are abusers. Right. And they hide it so well in the beginning. Sure. Because everybody thinks that abusers and, and pedophiles, for some reason, whenever they're caught or prosecuted, all of their friends go, oh, not good old so-and-so. He would, oh, no, he would, as if this guy were going to behave that way in front of them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like there's no hiding it. Clearly, if he, you know, it's, it's abusive, then he's going to be abusive in front of all of us. No, right? <laughs> you know, they're only abusive to the people that they're hurting. Mm -hmm. No, usually. Such a good point. So tell yeah. me about your podcast. Well, you know, you and I were still working together when I started this podcast. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing it for seven years. Really? Wow. And at first, I thought, yeah, I should be able to get six months, maybe even a year of shows out of that. <laughs> it's seven years later, and I'm still getting shows out of it. Mm. Because there are so many new developments. You talk about learning. I just learned something today. Really? Literally today. I was listening to a podcast from an expert in domestic violence and found out that in our own state, there are communities that are enhancing laws based on enhancement of the violence. Now, I've never heard of this. And it's like, wow. So I'm actually lining up that speaker to come on my podcast. Because you may or may not know that about two years ago, Great Britain and the British Isles made emotional abuse or psychological abuse, non-physical abuse. They made that illegal. We haven't done that in the United States. We haven't done it. So uh, we still consider abuse legally only broken bones and black eyes. Mm. But it's so much more than that. And it's usually that's usually preceded by this other abuse. I actually had the privilege of, of doing a training in front of a group of probation officers back in Virginia. I thought they were going to be kind of eh, not necessarily welcoming of my input. But I actually talked with them about this law in uh, the British Isles about the non-physical. And all of them knew it. They all knew that if the guy is on probation, they cannot get him off probation. A judge will just laugh at them if they go and say, get this guy off probation, put him back in jail because he's psychologically abusing. Well, that's not against the law. 
So we actually, it was just a wonderful session because they actually, this room full of probation officers were actually brainstorming, well, what can we use? Are there like city ordinances if they break that? You know, like maybe disturbing the peace where we could then take that to the judge and then the judge could say, okay, well, that's a real law that they broke. So now we can put them back in the slammer. There are actual communities here in Washington State, Renton um, being one of them, that have actually started enacting community laws that if they are violated by abusers could in fact be used for ammunition to get them back into um, confinement. So I'm really excited about that. Obviously, I've been learning for seven years. Yeah. And unfortunately, there's always more to learn. Now, your podcast is called Three Women, Three Ways. Right. So I always say that the three women, three ways are really more representative of the three stages of womanhood. If you're familiar with that, the child, the the mid-age woman, the childbearing woman, and then the crone, as they, they call it. So it's representative, and it's a rather obscure thing, but it's representative of how abuse affects all of the stages of womanhood. And I do say women, yes, men are abused, but it's a different type of abuse. The impacts are not as significant as they are for women. 98% of abuse is heterosexual male on heterosexual female. So yep, other types of abuse occur frequently, but not as frequently. So I just use the she for victim and he for perpetrator. Talk about online dating, because that's kind of fairly new. And that seems to be a place for them to kind of hide? Well, actually, that's interesting you bring that up because in my experience, one of the most common ways for abusers to find victims is in church. There are many churches that reach out to victims with programmings thinking that they're doing very well. And uh, believe it or not, there are several situations where I can name where abusers actually seek out those churches and establish a relationship with a new a new person. I'm sure online dating, the whole thing is rife. It's, it's really kind of a, a separate category because then not only are you bringing in the uh, potential for abuse, but you're also bringing in the potential for stalking, which is a form of abuse. You're also bringing in that whole bullying, cyber shaming. And many women who experience abuse experience multiple forms of it, financial abuse, physical abuse. There are many women whose private lives have been posted on the internet as a form of abuse. Now, you're getting really convoluted there once you start bringing in social media. Well, one thing I was going to say is there's so many churches that don't support the woman leaving. I actually like to go to talk to congregations and clergy people because I feel that even if you do not, in your faith, believe in divorce, for example, that doesn't matter. You can still protect a woman. If you believe that that those two were a match made by a higher power and nothing should bring them asunder, blah, 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 uh, that's fine. So don't, don't advise divorce. Advise legal separation so mm-hmm. that she has protection. So just because you have a set of beliefs doesn't mean that you can't protect a victim. And I think sometimes congregations kind of forget that. They think, well, can't divorce, so therefore you're just stuck with him. But not necessarily. There are other alternatives that don't necessarily compromise your basic beliefs. We're almost out of time, but I wanted to talk about once somebody has gotten out of a relationship like that, if you would call it recovery or healing, can you speak to that a little bit? Not very well, because I think that for many women, 
depending on the study that you get, and there are many, many studies, but depending on the study, it's anywhere from 60 to 80% of women who experience domestic violence also experience PTSD. Right. And it's usually not treated or not even identified. Mm. So you've got a lot of people who are experiencing not just domestic violence, but the repercussions from the domestic violence to varying degrees. If it's not recognized and you can't even talk about it, if you don't even know you have this, how are you going to deal with it? You're finding a lot of women who bounce back pretty well, but you also have a lot of women who just can't bounce back. And so to come up with generalizations for recovery or formulas for recovery, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. I can't do it. I think that the best we can do is say there is assistance. There are places that you can go. There are counselors you can go to. There's study, self-study that you can do that helps you get insight into what you're experiencing. Each person's follow-up is at their own pace. Mm-hmm. And it could be a year. It could be 10 years. It's just at your own pace. Like most people in our society, we want something to be quickly fixed. I have a friend who was widowed after 40 years of marriage. And she said that for the first six months, everybody was wonderful. No, but what? And she said at seven months, they were going, well, you've got to let this go. You have to move on. You ha-, And she's going, 40 years. I'm supposed to move on at month seven. Yeah. We want quick fixes. We want a formula. And I don't think there is a quick fix yeah. to the repercussions domestic violence. I think too finding somebody that believes you because I know in some cases the whole family will turn on the one person who calls out the abuser. And again that makes it hard too because don't forget with uh, domestic violence the one of the hallmarks of that is isolation mm-hmm. from family and friends for the victim. And then you get the victim who finally decides to to leave. She's still in isolation because of the um, attitudes, you know, toward her and toward her experience or the belief that her spouse or partner was just fine because he never abused me. I'm a big believer in the research. There are whole university departments. Uh, I myself got one of my master's degrees from the University of Colorado at Denver. They have a program in uh, gendered violence, and they often offer seminars and educational opportunities. Places like I mentioned earlier with the BPW East Side that are offering information about the LNI protected leave law. There are also a lot of support groups and a lot of online support groups. So I think that if you're experiencing this or if you know somebody who's experiencing this, do your homework, learn as much as you can, right? And believe them. Well, thank you so much, Heather. This has been so insightful. Three Women, Three Ways podcast. And the book is Why Doesn't She Just Leave? A New Perspective on Domestic Violence on (laughs) Amazon by Heather Stark. Heather, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm Lori Hardy. Thanks for listening in today. And we hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference in our community.